Welcome everybody to Mind Rolling. I'm Raghu Marcus, and this edition of Mind Rolling, I've had the great pleasure, and I really mean that, uh, to uh, host an interview a man named Kylie John Clark, who works uh, with homeless people in San Antonio and has a fantastic story. He actually sits with them, meditates with them, is with them in the most loving, open way. Uh, he's got, a, again, a fantastic story. And I just got to say something about this opportunity, and I, I said it to him off the air. Uh, actually, I meet people, uh, in this case, it was a poem that I think I saw through somebody posting on Facebook. I was so touched. He writes these books of poetry. They're just uh, fabulous. And uh, Dharmic poetry. I was so touched by this poem, I just had to find out more about him. So I found out the kind of work that he did, as I said, with homeless people. His story, he came from a very, very troubled family, had tremendous suffering, addiction, and so on. So uh, it, it's, it's quite, a, quite a transformational story. And so I found him, and I said, I'd love to do a podcast with you. And, and sure enough, we came together. But we came together. We didn't know each other whatsoever. The opportunity to get to know somebody, even through a public, quote-unquote, podcast, and end up having a friend. And uh, this, this happens many, 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 many times doing these podcasts, uh, is uh, uh, really a tremendous opportunity. I don't want to get gushy here, but I'm pretty, I feel blessed really to meet people like this who are really uh, offering something of themselves to the world around them. And uh, so, uh, Kylie John Clark, as you'll hear uh, momentarily. I, I don't want to go on much further uh, except to say, again, we appreciate your support. We have to do our little bit here, everybody. Thank you for the support that you've been giving to MindPod Network and Mind Rolling. Again, we appreciate uh, the uh, es most especially, it seems to be something that's the most sustaining which is recurring donations. If you all can get, if, if enough of you can get to the nine bucks, well, we like nine because it's uh, a derivative of 108, which is the number, sacred number of the guru in the East. So we like nine, uh, so we like 18, we like 27, 54, whatever it is. And if he, even less, we don't care because it's the recurring nature of it so that every month there'll be enough money coming in to help support the network and the podcasters and teachers that are involved. So uh, please do continue and don't forget about us that way. And also there's Amazon. You can go up to mindpodnetwork.com and you can see the Amazon link. You can bookmark it and whenever you purchase something, of course, we get a little piece uh, of the amount that you spend so it doesn't cost you anything and it's a great way to a great way to support us and also we finally got our store up at MindPod Network and you can go into the store there's some really beautiful t-shirts and and an exceptional because uh, this is something I put together when I was in India uh, it's called the MindPod uh, Network Mindfulness Box and it's a beautiful uh, box. Uh, it looks beautiful. It's got this Tibetan red felt covering this beautiful wooden box. And it has in it uh, a couple of books by Thich Nhat Hanh and Pema Chodron. And it's got a, uh, we put together a bunch of meditations from the different teachers on the network. Jack, and Sharon, and Ramdas and Lama Surya Das, and um, uh, so uh, what else has got? Got mala, it's got a beautiful puja picture, it's got incense, an incense holder. It's just your, your primary starter kit to do regular day-to-day -day practice outside of your 
devices, your life, your family, your career, so that uh, this goes a long way to helping all of us be way more connected with each other than we are. So there you go. That's up there. You can purchase that. As I said, T-shirts. We'll have other offerings. We're going to have downloads. We've got the... I've been saying it over and over. Everybody's getting bored. Yeah, the Heart Mind app is coming. We're getting closer and closer. We're going to be a little late, but we're going to get it there. And we're going to get the the uh, online retreat, the course, uh, which I've been working on for, uh, Jesus, seems like almost a year. So uh, there you go. Thank you very much, everybody. And keep uh, writing and letting us know what you like what you might want to hear more of, or anything at all. We can talk. Here he is, Kylie John Clark on Mind Rolling. I've got a wonderful guest today, everyone. Kylie John Clark, who uh, is more anonymous than he should be. And that may only be me, because I hadn't heard of you before welcome to the show it's a crazy little introduction there but uh but you know yeah i i like that i mean that actually sounds pretty much uh the way i want it to be regu <laughs> okay good well you know what i'm gonna do right off the bat because i don't know how i became aware of you i don't remember it could have been through a facebook post or something but it was a poem. So everybody out there, uh, we're, we're, I'm going to, uh, of course, get into uh, Kylie's story. But I just have to, and this, this may seem odd as well, but the way that I came to you was through this poem. Okay? Do you mind if I read this poem? No, by all means. Okay. And then I'm going to tell everybody where it's from. But since this is what turned me on, I figured this is what I like to share, things that turn me on. And this poem is called The Fearful Wave. The electric drumbeat in the center of your chest feeds all the rest. Your heartbeat is interconnected to the pulse of everything, seen and unseen. Give it use of your eyes, ears, tongue, touch, and mind. Breathe into the chest deeply. See with your heart. Visualize that the heart is a wheel shooting rainbow light beams throughout all the worlds as it spins around and around. These rays of light are liberating all beings from their suffering. O oh, great being, think only of the happiness of others. Wish for them all you could ever want for yourself. All knowledge, all matter, all thought, all energy, all that ever was or ever will be is here now. Your only work is to find that it is you living and breathing in all things. Hold a vision of all creatures being free from poverty, danger, illness, addiction, worry, heartache, fear, and doubt. Make this your heart's desire. Hold this image steadfast in your mind. See it over and over. Enter it into your imagination. See that all beings are already perfect in health, safe, blessed, prosperous, prosperous, and loved. See it clearly again and again. Stir up a feeling within yourself that this wish is already accomplished and rejoice. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas and all enlightened masters, past and future. It is still being preached in the silence between heartbeats. Wow, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that guy can write. Jeez. I mean, you know, yeah. Seriously, I don't think I've ever met a writer, especially somebody who tries to write anything spirit, spiritual that doesn't feel like it's coming from a higher source, almost like, you know, it's a little woo-woo to say channel channel it because I know a lot of novelists think that they're being giving, given this uh, information also. But 
I, I, you know, I can't take credit for any of this stuff. I think I have about six books out there, and I really, I remember I went to a um, a yoga class, and the instructor she, after after the, you know, we would get in corpse pose and and do the cool down, and we would lay there, and she would she would love to read something uh, spiritual or you know a poem or something nice just while we were laying there after a very intense workout and I was laying there and I heard the instructor reading something and I was thinking that's beautiful wow like I can't wait until uh, after class I'm gonna ask her what that was that she was reading and I mean it brought tears to my eyes it was so gorgeous and beautiful and touching and so she said okay roll over in the fetal position and slowly get up and so I sat up and I looked and she was reading out of one of my books. And I thought, oh, my God, like, you know, I, I didn't write that. Like, I, I cannot take credit for anything. It was given to me. And, and I, I was thinking, man, I hope I have a copy of that at home because I'm going to reread that. It was just gorgeous, you know. Amazing. Absolutely so amazing. I'm glad that you found that. I'm glad it touched you. It means a lot to me. Well, it, and we'll get into this a little further. It's, I know that you know my tradition and where I come from through Ramdas and all that, but it is so aligned with everything that uh, we were given in, in India, although this is, of course, within a Buddhist concept, but I know that that's, um, you're beyond that ism, uh, as far yeah. as I can tell. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so we'll, but we'll talk about that later. So we need to get... Um, people apprised of of your work of your life and uh i i not to get into uh, a huge thing um about how some of this transformation happened but uh, i think you do need to start with the earlier part of your life which was very difficult and and people everybody out there take a listen to this because we all have had very very tough times at one time or another and uh, there's no comparing one to another. Suffering is suffering. But um, in this case, and how I talk about this on Mind Rolling a lot, is how uh, really uh, suffering, suffering can create transformative process. And uh, you have uh, an extraordinary uh, story to tell. So uh, give us uh, a little bit of uh, what your life has been like. Um, yeah, I mean, we all have a story. Everybody has um, samsara that you have to deal with. But, you know, I grew up in a really small town. My mother, she suffered from a type of mental illness that was brought on by early childhood trauma. And I'm not going to go into details about that, but you can pretty much figure it, figure it out for yourself. And so my mother was very anxious. She lived in a very frightening world. And so growing up, you know, I could feel that tension. And I was a frightened child because my mother was frightened. Some people can, you know, they say that even in the womb, if, a, if the mother is suffering from anxiety, the baby is practically floating in the chemicals of anxiety. And so... I was born, even in the womb, it felt like I should be afraid. And so I came out into this world. And you know how they say the fight or flight thing is, if there's a bear, you actually need to be afraid. But when you, there's not a bear, it's very, very confusing because being around my mother, there seemed to be always a bear in the next room, but I could never find it. And so my father he also suffered from depression and alcoholism and i guess in a way i knew that if something did happen he wasn't there to protect us so it was just a very confusing um you know dad would sleep all day couldn't get out of bed and now that i'm older and i work in mental health i understand it um but it, you know the whole childhood thing was you know like what what's really going on here and so i came up as a teenager, teenager, I became a rodeo clown, and I started traveling all over the country as a bullfighter, and 
you know, when, when the Cowboys buck off the bull, uh, they're temporarily dazed when they hit the ground. So the bullfighter has to run in there and, and get the bull's attention uh, so that the bull will chase them and give the cowboy time to get up and get on the fence. And so you could say that was a type of at-risk behavior because I was always trying to prove that I wasn't afraid because I was so afraid. I was afraid of everything. I, was, I would have panic attacks and... Uh, just going into a grocery store and buying a loaf of bread was frightening for me. So I did everything I could to prove to myself and others that I that I wasn't afraid. And one of those was riding bulls, fighting bulls, getting in bar fights. Um, you know, we would go down the highway, me and my rodeo buddies, and we'd be in two trucks side by side going 80 down the highway. And I would climb out of the front into the back of the truck and jump into the back of the other truck. And so everybody knew me as Crazy Kylie, you know, Crazy Kylie, he'll do anything, you know, watch this guy. Uh, from, you know, setting off firearms in motel rooms to, uh, you know, you name it, fighting, chasing women, drinking, that whole deal. But all of that was to cover up the fact that I was probably more terrified than anybody you've ever met in your life. So time progressed. I, I was going from extreme mania to extreme depression. I was losing jobs. I was getting locked up. I got married. I started having kids. And finally, at the, the end result of it was that my wife left and took the kids, and she said that she didn't want to be with a drunk anymore. And that was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because if I made any connection with anything in this world, it was with my children. And I said... For the first time, you know, they talk about rock bottom. I'm like, you know, crazy Kylie is one thing, but losing my kids is another thing. And so I started going to 12-step meetings, and I went to a doctor, and I asked him what was wrong with me. And he, he said that it was depression, and I tried several different medications until I found one that seemed to work. And constantly going to meetings, constantly trying to... Um, get to the root of the suffering and it was a hard long road I mean if anybody tries to kick alcohol or drugs or prescription pills or any of those things I mean it's it's real easy for me to say nine years later that you know you can do it rah 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 I'm your cheerleader but it fucking sucks I mean it sucked I remember the first night I quit drinking I had to move in with my alcoholic father or I was homeless I had no place to go we lost the Suburban, the big brand new Suburban. We lost the house. We lost everything. We were in credit card debt. I mean, it was, and going through the divorce, it was extremely painful. So it was sleep on the street or move in with the dad that I hated. And so I moved in with my alcoholic father. And, you know, that night, the first night that I went to bed without drinking a 12-pack, I started sweating so bad that my sheets were completely soaking wet. And then I was so hot, I would throw the sheets off. And then I would, I would get so cold, my teeth were chattering. And I was shaking. And so I'd throw the wet sheet back on, covered in my own sweat. And I, I, I would get from hot to cold. And I, would he I was hearing people screaming outside, like arguing. And I would jump out of bed and I would look out the blinds. Well, we lived down the country. There was nobody out there screaming. And it was terrifying. I didn't, I didn't even know that it was the DTs. I didn't know what was going on. I thought I had the flu or something. I didn't even uh, make the connection between not drinking and, and what was happening. And that happened several nights in a row. And I probably should have went to a decent detox and treatment center to, um, to have a little help getting through that process. So uh, one of the turning points with my dad is that we were sitting in the living room and I was talking about how terrible life, what, what you know, my ex-wife is doing to me, what the bosses are doing to me, what the world is doing to me. And he gave me prob probably the, the best Vajra advice that, you know, uh, even drinking his vodka and being half drunk himself, he gave me some sage wisdom that I'll never forget. I'm going on in my pity party and, and my dad looked over at me and he said, uh, son, Sometimes you got to reach down between your legs and grab your balls and just move on with life. And I mean, it hit me like a diamond bullet between the forehead. 
It's like I can sit here and piss and moan in my dad's single white trailer or I can get off my ass and really try to do something, you know. And that's when I started looking around for something to do sober. And the first thing I found, well, I went to a used bookstore and I found a book on Zen Buddhism. And I never even knew anything about Buddhism. Growing up in, you know, South Texas, I mean, that was the furthest thing that I had, you know, encountered. But just the cover and it was cheap. And so I bought it and I took it home and I read it in one sitting. So that led to getting involved with the Shambhala Center in San Antonio and getting involved with the San Antonio Zen Center and being around people that uh, some of them drink, you know, that kind of deal. But it was just getting out of myself and getting out of the house and being around other people and staying busy uh, and to have something to focus on. I mean, I read all the books. I read entire libraries. I mean, anything I could get my hands on about Buddhism. Um, and, it, you know, I think that's one of the things that will pull you out of addiction or anything that you're going through is is a hope, a lifeline. There is, there can be an answer, and if I follow this path, I might, um, you know, life could get better. I could escape this suffering, and that was, of course, what Buddha said. You know, life is suffering, and there's an end to suffering, and that is the eightfold path. So when I started reading that, I was like, hey man, I know all about suffering, and if you know the answer. By all means, I'm going to keep reading until I find it, right? And, you know, that led to me becoming friends with people that were sober and doing things with their life. And uh, this lady I had met there named Lisa Harkema, she came to the Shambhala and I used to spend all day there. I would just sit there. When the door opened, I was there. And when they locked the door, I was the last one to leave because if I went home, I was afraid I was going to get drunk, you know? And by this time, I got my own apartment, a really crappy, uh, <laughs> you know, roach-infested apartment. And um, so Lisa came to drop off some Tupperware dishes. And as she was walking out the door, almost as an afterthought, she leaned back in. She goes, Kyler, are you doing anything right now? I'm like, no. She goes, do you want to go to the San Antonio airport and pick up a teacher? And I said, yeah, sure. So I jumped in the car with Lisa and her two daughters, and we drove to the San Antonio airport. And I wasn't thinking anything. I know I wasn't even, I was too busy talking and visiting with her. We got out, we went inside the airport and I was rattling on uh, and, and I didn't know how to be around people. I didn't, you know, alcohol was so such a big part of my life that um, it was a strange adjustment going out to eat with a group of people and actually making small talk and actually, you know, just being human. I didn't know how to be human. Uh, in order to get over that fear, that social anxiety, I had to pour alcohol over it. And then I would get so drunk, I would make an ass of myself. So I was either scared as hell in social situations, or I was just drunk, stumbling around that might grab your, wife as a grab your wife's ass or, you know, throw up on the bar or something like that. There was no in-between for me. It was hot or cold, right? So I'm in a social situation and, and, and I'm just rattling on and on. And finally, Lisa goes, there he is. And I turn around and there's a Tibetan Lama. And it was like all these books that I had read, right? And here I am in San Antonio, Texas. And here's a Tibetan Lama with the robes and the mala beads and, you know, the shaved head. And he's walking towards me and this is the teacher. And I'm like, oh, my God. And, and, and. From that day to this, my life has never been the same. It's almost unbelievable the effect. Uh, his name is Lama Tuku Sori Rinpoche. Sori is T-S-O-R-I, Sori. Lama Tuku Sori Dechen Rinpoche. Uh, he runs the YTDR Foundation. Uh, he has uh, the most remote Tibetan refugee camp in India, and he takes in orphan children and um, raises them to be monks. And so we could get, you know, more into that later. But to make a long story short, he was in town for two weeks to do teachings. And after he had completed his teachings, he still had four days left before we had to take him to the airport. And we went back to Lisa's house where he was staying and all his luggage were, you know, you talk about Neem Paroli Baba and different saints that, you know, People attribute, you know, weird things happen around them. Mm. There's 
two that I can mention right now with uh, Lama Tukusori Rinpoche is that when we left Lisa's house, his luggage was sprawled out all over his bed in the guest room. His clothes were all over the bed. And the room was in shambles, and we, we had to run and jump in the car and take him to the teaching. And, and, and Lisa locked the door. There was nobody that was in the house but me, her, her two daughters, and, and Rinpoche. And we all left together. When we came back from the teaching, she unlocked the door, and we walked in. And both of his luggage were packed, and they were right there by the door. And we were incredibly shocked. And he didn't have a attendant with him. He was traveling alone. Mm. There was nobody that got into Lisa's house. And Lisa said, Rinpoche, are you going somewhere? And he turned around and pointed at me and goes, I'm going to Kylie's house. Mm. Yeah. So Lisa had you know, told me later that when she went into the guest room, it was completely clean. The bed was made. Everything was like nobody had even been there. Mm. So we, we took his luggage and we put it in my old beat-up truck. I drove him down from San Antonio to Floresville, Texas, to this roach-infested apartment. I had no idea what a llama was. I had no idea. I had no idea until 2011, until I went to India, that when you start walking towards his village with him, people are prostrating on both sides of the road. I mean, he's a, you know... um, very well-respected reincarnation of a famous yogi, uh, Yogi Dechen of Chamdo, uh, Tibet. This long history of mystical things, his previous incarnation, and he's well-loved and respected as this very important Rinpoche, a very important Tuku in the Tibetan culture. But he's in my house in Floresville, Texas, eating sausage and popcorn and, you know, I love it. BSing with me in this little roach infested. I tell you how bad the apartment was. I called the the floor. The carpet was so filthy. I asked the landlord if I could spray paint it. <laughs> and they said, I don't care what you do to it. So me and my kids literally took spray paint and we spray painted the floor and the couch. All all the furniture was from like garage sales and stuff. And we just, we, we pretty much made it like graffiti. The whole apartment was graffiti because we didn't care. It was so nasty anyway. Whatever we did was an improvement, right? And so he's sitting there on a graffiti couch, uh, you know. Okay, so for four days, we never left the place. You talk about telling somebody your deepest, darkest secrets. You talk about telling somebody your biggest fears. You talk about really, uh, you know, opening the door to letting somebody know who you really are. You know how you're afraid to really tell somebody some of the stuff you think and some of the things you've done because you know they're going to judge you. I told him the most outrageous things that I've never told anybody before or since. And he just looked at me with the loving, compassionate eyes and never said a word. You know, and one night about two o'clock in the morning after I had been talking and crying and carrying on all day and I was newly sober. So and newly medicated. So there's no telling how I was acting in his presence. But I, I just remember crawling across the floor to where he was sitting on the couch and I grabbed his feet and I picked them up and I put them on top of my head. And I put my forehead on the floor and I put his feet on top of my head. And I said, can you please, please, please let me be your student? And immediately, like, it, just instantly he grabbed me and pulled me up to his level and set me down next to him. He said, of course, of course, my dear, of course. Yes, 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 forever. In every lifetime, you've been my student. Yes, mm. yes, of course. And so, I mean... That's that skyrocketed me into starting meditation and teaching meditation, going out on the streets and getting involved with other suffering people that have a similar situation as mine and totally changed my life forever. Mm. I mean, this is so analogous with uh, Ramdas's first experience of Neem Karoli Baba, which I know you've, I'm pretty sure. Kylie and I are just meeting everybody, by the way. This is all. 
new to us. And um, so I'm getting to know everything about him. And he knows, I, th I think you do through Be Here Now. And I think you've met Ramdas on Skype, right? Is that true? Yeah, yeah. We Skyped one time. It was, yeah. it was beautiful. So it's, it's just the same. It's just amazing how the universe works. Mm -hmm. Ramdas sat in front of Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba the first time. Uh -huh. And he told him stuff that nobody could know about. And then Ramdas thought to himself, shit, if he knows that, then he knows all the bullshit that's going uh -oh. on inside me. It's a uh -oh. big uh-oh. And then as he had that uh-oh, he looked up and exactly the same as Rinpoche. Exactly mm -hmm. the same. Just nothing but complete non-judgmental love, unconditional love, which is really what this is all about. And the fact that you your father said that one thing to you in that moment right who got you out of a chair out of just took that one tiny step right mm -hmm. i mean that's what it sounds like to me that the universe provided that one opening and you grabbed it and you went into it and then it led to from here to there to the airport uh, it's just a fantastic story kylie i mean i and and it's Again, it's analogous with, with everything that um, we've experienced in a different way. We perhaps didn't go through as dramatic, uh, as I said in the very beginning, uh, suffering. You, suffering is suffering, and it doesn't yep. have to be that dramatic to lead you to, to get that one, to take that shot when suddenly you hear something and you go for it. And you go, okay, and then you end up with, uh, with a, a Zen Buddhist book and then into the Shambhala Center. And you took the opening, and that's really the, the most... I don't want to get into a whole preachy bullshit here, but <laughs> for many people who are suffering and who also have addiction problems or of any sort, and it doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs, it could be sex, it could be... Uh, addicted to uh, unworthiness for that matter. I mean, there's many, many kinds of addictions. See that opening. The universe will provide that opening. There's no doubt about it. And then it's a matter of making that choice. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, a, what a fantastic story. I mean, just beautiful. And um, so everybody out there, uh, Kylie does incredible work with homeless people, teaching them meditation and being with them in a way that very few people are willing to do. And uh, obviously out of this whole experience uh, that you had, you decided at one point that you were going to um, do something that you wanted to do to make a contribution to those around you. So talk a little bit about your work with the homeless and therapy and all of that. Um, I think it started that around when I started going to the Shambhala Center and stuff. I also went online and I applied for a volunteer badge to start helping out at a homeless facility in San Antonio. It was just another thing to keep me, get me out of myself. And so the badge came in the mail. I think I, I sent them $5 and they did a background check. I don't know how I passed the background check, but... Some way or another, um, I got this badge. And so then I started going downtown and I was serving food. But after about the fifth time of going down there and serving food, I, I, I realized, you know, I go in there for hours and work in the kitchen and serve food and never even meet one person that lived there or stayed there. All I was doing was slopping mashed potatoes on their plate. I wasn't making any friends. And but I and I would leave there with what a good boy am I feeling? I said this is bullshit. Like you know, I'm walking out of here thinking I, I worked with the homeless and look at me and aren't I doing such a good thing? And all I'm doing is fucking slapping green beans on a plate, you know. So with Rinpoche in my life, of course, with meditation helping me, I started um, networking to start. Uh, facilitating meditation groups in the shelter itself and while that was in the work uh, when I would go down there instead of volunteering I would just start walking up and down the streets doing Tong Lin meditation and I'm sure you're familiar with that mm. breathing in suffering the suffering of the world transforming it into healing light and, and breathing it back in 
Oh. Which there's, with all the things that my Lama has taught me, the two basic things is a Tonglin meditation, and he told me to, to, to learn everything I can about Padmasambhava, hmm. which is a famous Tibetan saint. All right. Or he's Indian, but he, you know, brought the teachings to Tibet. Um, so with that Tonglin was all I knew at the time. I mean, and so I used it. It's kind of like you had a one trick pony. That's all I knew. So I was walking up and down the streets and there was prostitution and there was drug addiction and there was people scoring drugs and there was um, syringes in the gutter and I met some really cool people and then people wanted to, uh, you know, find out what I was there for. I used to sit down on the corner and put out this whole little shrine with my Lama's uh, picture and I would put a, uh, a Tibetan bell and a singing bowl and all these things and I would give away mala beads. My uh, Lama would send me boxes of mala beads and I would give them out. And so I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but but I was having a great time and I wasn't drinking and I wasn't hurting anybody and I wasn't trying to convert anybody to my religion. My thought was, if you go to a place where there's a lot of suffering, maybe it, it would help to try to breathe in the suffering and transform it into love, joy, compassion and that kind of stuff. So I started doing it and met a lot of people and then people wanted to know who I was and what I was doing and what meditation. And so they would sit down and we do medita meditation together. And so we started calling ourselves HMP, which is homeless meditation practitioners, HMP street Dharma. And we were doing street Dharma, HMP street Dharma. So we just started calling, calling the group HMP homeless meditation practitioners. So then some, reporter wanted to follow me around all day he works for the san antonio current which is a newspaper so he came and so word got out through his article then people wanted to come down there with me and help me and so it just turned into the just kind of steamrolled until the till we were doing uh meditation on the streets in parks under bridges and then also inside the shelter itself and then so that's how it started mm. What this is a question I had. Uh, I was thinking about just in terms of the basic suffering that's going on with homeless people. There's tremendous issue, of course, of safety and security that they're always having to deal with. There's an issue of, of course, of just sustenance. There's an issue of uh, sustaining whatever addiction they may have. Uh, there's uh, issues of trust. I'm sure these are at least some of the basic things that, that uh, people deal with that are homeless. How do they, how do you get through talking about meditation when it seems there's such um, overt need to, uh, regarding their physical lives? How, how do you deal with that? I mean, that's one of the first things that I learned is it's not about me going to help them. You know, it's not, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the homeless person broke down rather quickly when I started spending a lot of time in that environment. And then it's not you helping the homeless, it's you with John and Bill and Mary, and they have the same suffering that you do, and they're dealing with some of the same stuff that your family is dealing with. It's all relative, you know. Um, there, there's, there's no more barriers to doing a meditation class in a homeless shelter or on the street with a group of people as there are sitting in the Shambhala Center with a lot of people that have their own, uh, you know, neurotic um, thoughts and insecurities and fears and, um, you know, troubles at home. It's all basically humans being humans together in that moment. One thing I learned about with homelessness is that their, like, their bullshit meter is on high. Like they know if you're real or not immediately. Like the way that you hand them a sandwich, 
they know if you're a fucking prick or not. If you go down there with your church group and you're passing out sandwiches and you're going to walk off with a hard dick like, what a good boy am I? They're not going to give you a time of day because they know you're full of shit. Now, when you go, go down there, not to teach, but to learn, when you go down there curious about what's going to happen in the moment with no agendas, sometimes the most beautiful thing will happen in group and you had nothing to do with it. They take over. They lead the group. Some things that they have said encourage you more than anything that you could possibly say. And it just becomes a, just this beautiful thing of people together being people and not having all these uh, you know, preconceived ideas. So that was one of the things I, early on I had to, you know, it went from me, I'm, I'm going down there to help them to I'm going down there to help me to the point, shit, I don't want to go down there again. I want to sit here on my ass and watch TV, but I'm going to go down there anyway. And then afterwards, thank God I did because they said something I needed to hear. Mm. So it's a long, strange trip, as they say. Yeah. Uh, I love this thing, the bullshit meter that you were talking about that they have in spades. Uh, just to share a little experience I had with that um, in, uh, in, in India. And this is after I met Maharaji. I was on a train leaving Benares for Delhi or something. And uh, I, it stopped or was just getting ready to go. Whatever it was, I, I thought, i got to get something to eat, so uh, I'm going to get some bananas. So I went and got some bananas. I get back on the train, and there's a, in, just in the, before you actually go to sit down in the waiting area, or, you know, in that part of the car before you can get into the actual seats, was a leper standing there. And he had no, um, I mean, part of his nose was gone. I don't know if you've, you've been to India, so you, I'm sure you've seen lepers. Um, and fingers gone, you know, and wrapped swathed in cloth. Uh, it was really difficult. So he put his hands out, you know, to ask for bakshish, for some money or for anything. All I had was a banana. So I took a banana and I gave him the banana. And he took the banana, and you talk about the bullshit meter? He looked at me like, are you out of your mind the way that you have given me this? Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, are you that cruel to not, can you see that I cannot peel this banana? I mean, all of it happened in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, I, I took the banana, and I did peel it, and I did give it to him, and then I realized how full of shit <laughs> I was. And this is after being with, a, you know, an incredible, great Mahazida. Mm -hmm. And still, of course, it wasn't integrated in, in me mm -hmm. of what's in that poem, which is it's all about giving in your mm -hmm. poem, which is why I read that at the very beginning, to set the tone for what this is all really about. Mm -hmm. So I can really uh, empathize with uh, that kind of work and... And what one needs to do uh, is, is, and I just love the fact that you, you go down there to hear for you what it is that's going to transform you, not how you can go ahead and, and help anybody. And, uh, and it's just wonderful stuff. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, thank God life shows us that we're full of shit all the time. Yeah. You know? um, I'm still learning every day, you know. I, I ha I've had in this the course of nine years different type of maybe spiritual experiences where it's a type of samadhi where you lose consciousness of your body, of your identity, kind of an ego death. And then slowly, you know, sitting at the feet of my Lama a couple of times while he's been teaching here in America, it's like, suddenly I get tunnel vision and all I see is him and then there's like I'm just this floating consciousness I'm not even aware that I'm this floating consciousness with no name no no history no uh, body no nothing 
And then at the end, he'll pick up the uh, hand drum and the Vajra and the bell and start ringing it. And slowly I'll start coming back to, oh, wait, wait a minute. My name's Kylie. Wait a minute. I'm, I have a body. Wait a minute. I have this history, you know. And you come back, you know, your feet come back to earth and go from such a ego death, total oneness, not knowing the difference between you, where you start and where you end. Um, the feeling that everything around you is just you in a different disguise, right? Mm. You know, even even my own mama is, you know, this is kind of hard. It gets kind of confusing when you try to put these things in words, but... Um, I've had these experiences walking around in nature where the tree is just another aspect of myself. The sky is just another aspect of myself. Um, there is no me. It's, it's all one substance is what I'm trying to say. It's all one source. And then the very next day, do something totally dumbass, you know, be mean to somebody or yell at my wife or scream at the kids or worry about whether the bills are going to get paid or you know and and that's the you know i don't i don't know how some people like uh ramana maharishi mm. harshi mm -hmm. he, he when i went to india to study it was funny because i went all the way to the most re, uh, remote tibetan refugee camp in india and when I finally got to my cell, my monk cell, where I was going to stay, um, I had brought all these books. Against, against my better judgment, I had brought all these books, but every time I would get into a cab or go into an airport, somebody would bring up a subject, and I would say, hey, I got a book about that, <laughs> and I would give it to them, right? See, I, I was told internally not to bring any books with me because I always have my nose in a book. I can always read a book. You're going to India, experience what it is to be in India without having your nose in a book. But um, <laughs> that's about how I listen to advice most of the time. I took about five books with me. And, and, and fortunately, I was put in a situation where I gave them all away by the time I got to the monastery. And when I walked into the door and set my stuff down, almost immediately, my roommate that we'd been traveling together, he was called away. Because our Rinpoche, our Lama wanted to talk to him. And when he came back, he brought the book, The Teachings of Sri Ramana Maharshi. Mm. I went to a Tibetan monastery <laughs> to find Ramana, Sri Ramana Bhagawan. Mm. I'd never seen his face before. I'd never seen those eyes before. Mm. I never, I didn't know who this person was. Mm. I spent that trip all day submerged in my Lama's teachings and all night reading the words of Bhagawan. Mm, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, how about I went to India and uh, got, you know, with supposedly a Hindu guru. Yeah. Of course, Neem Karoli Baba was beyond any of that. But right. I thought it was a Hindu guru. And uh, this is a famous story. I asked him, I figured you're with a Hindu guru. You asked for a mantra, <laughs> right? You know? Right. And I'm Jewish, right? On top of everything. He said, I said, so how should I meditate, Maharaji? He said, meditate like Christ. Mm. When he was crucified, he felt no pain. He was lost in love with every sentient being. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, huh? Mm -hmm. I just, I was like way, way over my head, but he insistently told us. And then we went back with Ramdas, and Ramdas asked him how. How did Christ meditate? And he went in and, and he became that Christ energy. Right. And we all you had this incredible experience. And, uh, and just like you, you went to a Tibetan Lama and you got Ramana Maharshi, which yeah. isn't that far about. You, you know, <laughs> this is a little further out. Uh, yeah. And here, here the same thing happened. Uh, by the way, there's a, I, I want to talk about uh, or mention so Kylie has a number of books out that are available on Amazon. I, I want to get this through to everybody. They are just uh, fabulous books of poetry. Uh, there's one called um, Beyond Perception, The Eternal Play of Self. 
And you have in your, you're mentioning, because I, I found this myself, and you brought this, I didn't know that you, that, that's the way that you met Ramana Maharshi. Uh, mm. Let me just read this from the book. It's a quote that you put in there that, again, it's just uh, something I love so much. When a man knows his true self for the first time, something else arises from the depths of his being and takes possession of him. That something is behind the mind. It is infinite, divine, and eternal. You may give it what name you wish. What exists in truth is the self alone. The world, the individual soul, and God are all appearances in it, like silver in mother of pearl. These three appear at the same time and disappear at the same time. Mm-hmm. I have loved Ramana Maharshi ever since I found him too when I went to India mm-hmm. and all, uh, all of these years uh, and uh, I, I again you know there's so many uh, cross references between us although we don't know each other mm-hmm. uh, that just gave me some instant recognition uh, uh, all along the way through your poetry and of course through something like this yeah, actually, one of my uh, good friends, her name is Catherine Paredes. She's been with me for years teaching meditation. Uh, in fact, I, I've taken a little sabbatical, a little break, because what I'm doing is peer support, and I'm linking people to mental health services. And so right now, Catherine is running some of the groups, and uh, she's a really beautiful, beautiful, I'll talk about a... a um, Wow, an, an old soul that's been around helping people, a bodhisattva. Uh, this this lady, if you if, when you meet her and you look in her eyes, you look in Catherine's eyes, all you see is drops of love. Hmm. And she is so good. And so she's helping facilitate uh, the groups right now. And she came to me from the Human Kindness Foundation. And the Human Kindness Foundation's uh, I don't know, it's Bo and yeah. C- Lozoff. Yeah, Bo not and, with us anymore. but yeah. Right, Bo passed away, and I guess Bo's root guru was named Kuroli Baba. Yep, yep. Right? And so she introduced me to Ram Dass. Oh, really? She introduced me to all this stuff. So in, in, we have a weird connection. <laughs> of, Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about one thing. We're getting close to the end of the of the show as they say um you talk there's one concept that i really love uh that you talk about a concept of meditation as becoming familiar with ourselves which has a uh, it's a tibetan in, um, definition of meditation i believe talk a little bit about i think this is a many people have a very difficult i i, I don't know if you've heard it i hear it all the time I can't sit every day. I can't sit. Uh, it's I get itchy. I get restless. I can't sit still. Uh, my mind, obviously, uh, I say to them, well, everything you're saying is the point <laughs> that you need to realize. And first of all, you're not going to until you get into enough suffering that you, you have to do something about it, as has happened with you. But I think the concept of becoming familiar with ourselves is something to uh, give to people to help out uh, regarding meditation. Talk about it a little bit, Kylie. Well, you know, the Tibetan words means to get to know. And for meditation is to get to know your own mind. It's like they say, you don't have to believe everything you think, right? And so I went from a long history of suffering where um, it's almost like you're, you're taking samsara seriously or maya seriously. Um, we know even through science, that this is an illusion, right? It feels very real. And the thoughts and the feelings and your emotions feel very real. But back behind that, what uh, Ramana, Sri Ramana would say, um, follow that thought down to its source. Who's thinking that? Find that person. Even, even in Tibetan Buddhism, they would say, when these thoughts arise, who is the thinker? Find the thinker. F- follow that down to the source. And that's what I'm saying. 
it might not be a setting meditation. It might be walking in nature. It might be riding a bike. But listen to your own thoughts. Become familiar with what you think. There's there's a practice where there's a white a white bean and a black bean. Have you heard this? No. Where every time you have a positive thought, you put a white bean in a pouch, and every time you have a negative, yeah. thought, you put the black bean in a pouch. And at the end of the day, you pour them out and see what you think most, right? <laughs> yeah. And so more than that, between judging whether it's good or bad, after practicing that so long, you're just trying to find the well from which these thoughts are coming from. It, it's a subtle nuance there. And... It may start like with, with my Lama Bodhicitta, just opening your heart to the experience, becoming curious about your experience and embracing the world without fear and complete openness. There are so many different practices you can do and so many different traditions that lead to the same place. No matter what prayers, you know, you, know, you can see Jesus can appear in your room, but who did Jesus appear to? <laughs> That's what you need to find out. You know, you can go travel the Holy Land. I went to where Buddha preached the very first sermon in Deer Park. But who was that there at Deer Park where Buddha preached the first sermon? That's what I need to know. Who is this person I'm calling Kylie that had this, that's doing these things with the homeless population? That's being interviewed for a podcast. Because when you can answer that, that's your, that's your answer. Mm. You know, we're already that, except for ignorance veils us from the truth. Mm. So no matter what meditation you do, no matter what prayers, no matter what church, synagogue, or meditation, or gurus, or lamas, it's all going to come back to you. All that external stuff is just to get you back to self. Back to the reality of who is experiencing all this. And once you find that out, brother, that's when the doors kicked open and you see the world in a completely different way. I will say one thing, though, and this probably stems from my tradition, which is bhakti yoga. Mm -hmm. Grace is an enormous factor. And... Uh, like my good friend Krishnadas, I'm not sure if you know who he is, he does the chant stuff around the world, uh, has said about grace, it's a matter of when it rains, mm -hmm. your practice is, is, the analogy is holding your hands, cupping your hands, so that mm -hmm. you can catch the rain. That's the practice. Yeah. Otherwise, it, you just get rained on. Right. So, and I think... And, and, and you have the perfect, perfect example of grace. You heard, you heard that thing from your father, and it jumped you out of that chair. You, you uh, had the intention then to look to get out of this suffering. You ended up in a bookstore, and then things started to happen one after the other. That's the grace. You, held, you cupped your hands together. I did the same when I was a, a kid. And I, I, I was just suffering, and then I heard, actually, the first thing I heard was, uh, Mayor Baba, don't worry, be happy. And I saw his picture, and I went, oh, shit, there is a way, <laughs> you know. And then, of course, psychedelics and all that helped. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but, yes, so I think the combination of looking into yourself, ultimately, and knowing oneself, is there is no way that one can navigate suffering can navigate being of use to anybody on this planet without that that knowing and uh, uh, and 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 cultivating fearlessness which is very much part of uh, what what uh, you're involved with with uh, the homeless shelters and so on and the homeless people and I like this uh, the veil of illusion right something else from one of your books force called by nature a uh, force called by many names the veil tricks us into seeing the world as a multitude of separate individual selves, but we are all one. And again, the, uh, day after day after day, we were with Neem Karoli Baba, he would go like this, one, 
Subek in Hindi means all one. There is only one. It was drilled into us to this day. I, on a day-to-day -day basis, I hear that whenever I end up, which is a lot, uh -huh. in, you know, in some kind of separation or us and them or whatever it is going through my daily life. The other day, talk about all this work I've done for decades and so on, still get angry. I was I, I was screaming at Siri on my iPhone. Okay, how ridiculous! <laughs> okay, so uh, the remembrance of that, that of our interconnectivity is huge and so important. And and I'm I'm just really, the work that you're doing, man, is fantastic. And uh, I'm so happy to have uh, how I ever came across this poem. I don't know. And we have this other stuff that dissects our lives. This uh, poem, by the way, comes from Body of Infinite Simplicity, a guide for homeless meditation practitioners, finding a home in non-duality for the modern Mahasiddha. It's, it's got absolutely gorgeous uh, poems in there that, are, that uh, are really transformative. And I know it all came through, but uh, y the vehicle is there that you've allowed uh, yourself to be of use, which is just a fantastic thing. And Kylie, uh, K-I-L-E-Y, John, J-O-N, Clark, C-L-A-R-K, Google them up, go to, just go to Amazon, right? It's all up there, correct? And um, I think up there as well is a way to get in touch with you if anybody has interest in helping in any way. Uh, I don't know if you go more than if, if it's just strictly local in, in the San Antonio area or if people can touch, get in touch with you to do work in their cities related to homeless people. And I'm sure you would advise them. So is there anything else <laughs> I want for people to know how uh, anything else that, that you can offer, or have I done a, a decent job here? No, I just uh, just want to, uh, you know, I don't want anyone to think that I'm some, you know, the integration of spirituality and grace, it, it's like you, you have to be there for grace to happen. And, and I don't, you know, like some of the writers that I know, well, I forget who, who said that, you know, they only write when inspiration strikes, but luckily inspiration always strikes at my desk at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> so you have to be at your desk at 8.30 in the morning for it to strike. So you basically have to put in the work. You got to put your ass on that chair and whether you want to or not, and then grace will come. The uh, muse will show up if you show up. And so I think what lured grace into my life was I was willing to do anything to get sober. I was willing to do anything to get out of this suffering I was going through. And that propelled me to make connections with the Shambhala Center, with the Zen Center, going to a bookstore, getting books, and which led to going to India, which led to, which led to, which led to. Yeah. Put your ass there. And grace will happen. Mm -hmm. Yep. Cup your hand and the, you'll Cup catch the hand. rain. Right? Absolutely. And that's the practice. So yeah. wonderful to meet you, Kylie. It's wonderful. I don't have a website, but like, like you said, if people are interested in the books, they can, and I'm easy to find, I guess, just Google my name and, and the uh, author page on uh, Amazon probably has my phone number and stuff. And I'd be willing to help anybody. Uh, getting things started in their town. If they have any questions, I'd be more than happy to uh, share my experiences with facilitating, um, you know, groups in homeless facilities. Mm. Wonderful. Again, thank you, Kylie, John, Clark. It's been a, a absolute joy and a pleasure. And uh, as as, <laughs> as as the dude, as the guy at the end of the 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 movie um, with Jeff Bridges, the Big Lebowski, the Big Lebowski says, the cowboy says, it sure is great. Something like it sure is great knowing the dudes out there doing it for those taking, of us are, taking her easy for the rest, rest of us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I met and I I met somebody interesting uh, a few months ago in India, a Baba, another one of these free beings, and <laughs> we said the same thing about it. So wonderful to meet you and happy you're out there. And uh, everybody, 
This is Mind Rolling on the MindPod Network. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and we'll see you next week. Bye bye, Kylie. Bye.